21st Century Women on HCR 104 FM and Cambridge 105. And in this edition of 21st Century Women, we discuss fostering children, the difficulties that the authorities have in placing children with the right foster family and coping with dealing with lone refugee children who find themselves in the Cambridgeshire care system. Bobby Jones speaks to Christine Hopwood from Cambridgeshire County Council's Fostering Service. And we meet three women who are off to the Antarctic in an initiative that aims to help get more women into senior managerial posts. Bobby Jones looks at the world of dieting, learning how Pat King completely changed the way she eats. And we talk poetry on the A14 as I meet Daisy Johnson, the A14 writer-in-residence. Yes, there is such a thing. That's all coming up in this edition of 21st Century Women. In the studio, we have Bobby Jones. Hello there. We have Liz Kelly. Hello again. And me, Linda Ness. Now, we've got a very packed show this evening, ladies. So I guess as we're trying to squeeze um, a lot in, then we'll go straight into our first piece. This is Bobby speaking to Christine Hopwood. She's a marketing manager for Cambridgeshire County Council dealing with fostering. There's a place in your heart And I know that it is love And this place is much brighter than tomorrow In the press over the last few weeks, there has been a lot of talk about fostering and particularly with the Tower Hamlets people where an English-speaking child was placed in the foster care with a mixed-race family whose reported use of Arabic upset her and she was moved to live with her grandmother. And these dilemmas happen all the time, all the way across the country, not just in Tower Hamlets. And that's why I'm talking to Christine today, to find out how Cambridgeshire deals with this kind of thing. Christine, for what reason would children come into care? Well, children come into care for a really wide range of reasons. Most children have experienced some levels of neglect or abuse um, and this can happen at any stage in their lives from birth onward. Our looked after children have often experienced some level of trauma at home and then have also been through obviously the unsettling period of time when they've been removed from their birth families and placed into foster care. That's absolutely awful for any child at all. When a child gets into this situation, some poor social worker has to come along and say, you're coming with me and I'm going to find somewhere nice for you to live. Now, that sounds very simple, but actually the process is not as simple as it sounds. That's right. I mean, our social workers are obviously extremely highly experienced and well-trained Um, to deal with what is obviously going to be a very difficult situation for for the child involved. So first and foremost, their view is to make that situation as, as easy for the child as possible and to always have that child's best interests at heart and to try and match them and place them with the best possible fostering placement that we can find. Absolutely. And the child's uh, safety is paramount and their happiness too 
But we know that when something goes wrong and a child comes into care, it's an emergency situation and you only have a small pool of carers, I suspect. And at that moment, you've got to find the best kind of match that you can for that child. That can be very difficult. That's right. So in most cases, we will find that um, we'll have we'll have a child come into care, and depending on the situation, we may, it may or may not be an emergency. So we will sometimes have some forewarning that this is going to happen. But yes, if it's an emergency placement, first and foremost, as I say, because the child's welfare is at the forefront of our minds, we will find them an immediate place for them to stay where as you say they're safe they're well cared for and they're with experienced and well-trained foster carers it might be the case and is sometimes the case that those very temporary um, arrangements will only last for a very short period of time so we have some really well-skilled expert foster carers who specialize in taking those emergency placements and are literally on call for us at any time night or day um, to look after the children who may need them and for lots of reasons it may be in the child's best interest that that is a relatively short placement and that they will be with those carers for a relatively short period of time then our team works really hard to find a more permanent placement Mm. for that child which may be for a short period of time also because maybe that child can go back home Um, and obviously we'll do our best to try and make that happen if that's possible maybe the child will go into what we call kinship um, foster care placement where a member of the family may be able to to take on their care but if the child is going to remain in foster care Obviously, we try and find a placement that's as stable and as long term for that child as possible. And we take into consideration a really wide range of factors um, in trying to establish whether that is the best place for them to be. So that could be the geography of where we are in the county. So it might be in the child's best interest to remain at the same school that they've been going to. We might want to keep them close to some of their family members so that we can have contact. If they have siblings who may or may not be in the same placement as them we may want to keep them nearby and we're also thinking about obviously the fostering household that those children are moving into so for some children it's really beneficial if there are other children in the placement whether they are other fostered children or whether they are birth children of the foster carers and we also think about the carers themselves their skills their experience the type of children that they've worked with in the past maybe there might be a specific issue or experience that that child's been through and we might have carers who really specialise in that area of work and can offer some really intensive support for the children um, to support them through particular issues so all of those things come into come into our consideration obviously within all of that we also look at ethnicity religious backgrounds race language you know, they are obviously all part of that package too and we do where possible try to place children in an environment where we think they're going to be most supported with their cultural and religious backgrounds. With the the Tower Hamlets thing, the the major problem was the language and also the religion. Um, Well, the vast majority of the looked after children in Cambridgeshire are white British children, um, either of a Christian background or of non-practicing religion. And um, the majority of our foster carers 
also fall into that that ethnic category as well. However, we certainly do have children in our care um, who have different religious backgrounds and children obviously from different countries, um, children whose first languages might not be English. We have a proportion of our looked after children who are unaccompanied asylum seekers, so they may come from literally anywhere in the world. And with those children and young people, we're obviously dealing with some of the experiences that they have been through at home and also on their travel to arrive in this country. So Mm. they have had sometimes even more of a traumatic experience through their journey to, to reach us. And the foster carers who we bring in to work with those children will have a really good understanding of their religion. Um, We have carers who support some of our Muslim unaccompanied asylum seekers and help them, for example, go to regular prayers at the mosque and help them with their dietary requirements. So certainly there's a a lot of understanding around that. But, But as I say, also a real understanding of what the child has potentially witnessed in their in their country of origin some of the experiences they've had while they've traveled to this country and also the uncertainty for that child's future and whether or not they're going to be able to remain in this country as well so mm. so yes those carers are working with with lots and lots of uncertainty and yeah very quickly they build up a lot of expertise in that area yeah these poor children particularly if they're unaccompanied minors gosh we think to ourselves well Cambridgeshire we're right in the middle of the country you can expect that the south coast might get lots of those children and London too but Cambridgeshire it's very unusual how do we get unaccompanied minors well it will it will be a number of reasons I mean sometimes it can be that there are children traveling in a group and if that group is stopped somewhere potentially say for example on on, a, on on the A14 or a busy route through the county it's where that child comes into care and where that child is is you know is first found by the authorities that you take responsibility for that situation but there can be lots of different ways you know there can be lots of different ways that a child they may have entered the country obviously of a different county a different part of the country but have then out ended up in this county perhaps staying with friends or family perhaps working um mm. you know illegally in some cases um mm. perhaps being exploited in other ways oh, so gosh. we do have children here as we do across the country um who have and are experiencing quite difficult situations these foster carers sound as though they're very special people and i guess that you're always looking for new people to join your army of foster carers we are um and i think one of the things that Um, our conversation today really highlights is the importance of having a really wide pool of foster carers available to us so that when children and young people do come into care we have the most appropriate placement available to them so we want foster carers from all different backgrounds with a really wide range of different skills and experiences so that when we do have children coming into care a, we have a large number of foster carers available, but also we have a real diversity of carers as well. Um, so yes, we're always looking for foster carers right across the county. And we're really interested to hear from people, whatever it is they can offer. So whatever their background might be, whatever their skills might be, even depending on the amount of time they might have available. So I think people often think of fostering as being a real sort of full-time 24-7 role. And in most cases it is. Um, most of our foster carers, they do foster and it is the, the main um, the main focus of, of their work. 
But we do have carers who, for example, work for us as respite carers. So they offer respite care to other foster carers and take the children that are living with them full time into their care for short periods of time. And then we also have carers who, for example, help us in our supported lodging scheme, which is working with older teenagers and helping them prepare for independence, which, again, is a little bit less hands-on and intensive than working with perhaps younger children and and young people um, but is equally a really rewarding role and really helps prepare teenagers for independence and moving on after care. So if anybody out there is interested in uh, signing up how do they do that? The best thing to do if you're interested at all and want to find out any type of information about any type of fostering is to give us a call on 0800 052 0078 or visit our website which is www.cambridgeshire.gov.uk forward slash fostering we're very interested to hear from people Um, tell us what you can do tell us what you can offer and we'll try and find the right kind of fostering opportunity for you That was Christine Hopwood speaking to Bobby Jones about fostering. The music was Michael Jackson, Heal the World. That was really interesting, Bobby. And of course, this is just your topic, isn't it? You used to be a social worker. Let's fess up now. (laughs) Yeah, sadly, I was. I shouldn't say sadly because it's a fantastic job to do. But yes, I mean, it's not the easiest job in the world. And it does depend upon which particular department you might get into. Mm hmm and fostering and uh, that kind of side of child. I mean, that, that en- encompasses child protection, it encompasses fostering, it encompasses adoption, mm-hmm. all that side. That it all sort of merges in, into whatever the child's needs turn out to be. And of course, it's down to the social worker to actually do a comprehensive assessment of where that child is and what is best for that child. Yeah, it must be. I mean, you're kind of in a, in a no-win situation to an extent, aren't you? Afraid so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought it was very interesting that uh, we do get uh, re- refugees ending up in Cambridgeshire. I think mm. you mentioned in the piece that you were surprised and it surprised me as well. But then we shouldn't be surprised because we're reading the newspapers about lorries being stopped in the A14. That's right. And of course, it's wherever you find the particular people, that is the place that you have to deal with their needs. Uh So if they get out in the middle of the A14, then it's Cambridgeshire that has to deal with it. Yes. Yes, indeed. Very, very difficult situation. Very easy to to get it wrong, I would imagine. But I I think that the the shout out is that they want a very wide range of people to take up fostering. That's the message behind this, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's really essential to have a wide range of people, not just ages, but ethnicity Mm -hmm. and religion and cultures, because, of course, that's where all the children come from, all these different places. So the more diverse the foster carers can be the better chance the child has of getting a really um, good home that would be as close to the home that they should be in 
than, yeah. than possible. It's possible, yeah. Yeah, because I don't think there's very many. I always thought, you know, of children's homes, but that's quite an old-fashioned concept now, isn't it? I think yes. they do try and put them put people <laughs> with families, which is uh, which is of course great. Yes, exactly absolutely. I'm, I'm not sure whether there are too many so-called homes left anymore, and if they are, they're probably on the way out. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, mm. well, difficult situation, but an interesting topic uh, nonetheless. 21st century women on HCR 104 FM and Cambridge 105. As we've discussed on previous editions of this programme, there are too few women leaders in the world of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine generally referred to as STEM. Homeward Bound is working to address this imbalance and is organising a trip to the Antarctic for 80 participants each year for the next 10 years. Linda Ness met three of next year's participants who told her about the scheme. I'm sitting in the railway station, got a ticket. I'm joined in the studio by Cathy Sorbara, Hannah Laverne's Schlogelhofer and Maddie Brazier, who are preparing to undertake an amazing expedition. There are three of 80 women who've been chosen to take part in Homeward Bound 2018. This initiative aims to raise awareness about the cost of the underrepresentation of women in leadership positions, particularly in the area of science, technology, engineering, mathematics and medicine. Kathy, let's start with you. Tell me about the ethos of this uh, this project, this this organization. Is that an organization for a start? So it's a, a not for profit organization and it's not not for profit. So essentially it's a group of women who are all volunteering and the goal of the project is to really gather 1,000 women over 10 years and help them to build confidence and leadership and communication skills that they can then take on in their own roles as leaders in um, whatever their fields may be in STEM. I mean, we're still talking about this, aren't we? It's 2017 and we're still talking about, you know, having to set up organisations really to help women become leaders in it's, it's really crazy, isn't it, that we're still having to do this? Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of um, barriers that women face when they try and enter leadership positions. And this is something that Homeward Bound recognizes. So there's a lot of different factors. There's factors just such as the lifestyle. So women want to have children and then they, they need to take career breaks. And what happens after that career break? Can they still enter back into the workforce, into these leadership positions? And then there's a lack of women mentors in these leadership positions for women. And this is something that Homer Bound aims to change. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And I do wonder if paternity leave, I wonder if that will kind of rebalance things a little bit more. I'm hoping that that's the case anyway. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what's happening. You've got this year programme and there's training involved and all that kind of thing. Exactly. So it's really not just about the trip to Antarctica, but it's the year beforehand. And we undergo leadership training with all of the 80 women that were going with us to Antarctica. So we meet once a month online because the women represent 13 different countries. So we're all over the world. And we learn things such as strategy, um, communication, visibility. We have uh, a career coach and we go through different types of personality testing to assess the types of leaders that we um, are and the leaders that we will be. And then we will 
be forming groups and undertaking various projects. And these projects range from things like climate change and underrepresentation of gender in the workforce. They can really be anything that we're excited about and that we can collaborate with the other women that will be on board with us in Antarctica. Kathy, tell me about your background. So I have a PhD in medical life science, but I've moved away from research and now I'm Chief Operations Officer of the Cheeky Scientist Association. That's a great name. (laughs) (laughs) It always catches people's attention. Um, So it's a, a company that's based out of America. And what we do is we help um, academics who want to transition into industry. I'm now speaking to Hannah. What preparations have you made um, for this trip? Are you having to do any training or anything like that? The training at the moment is quite a lot of introspective work, actually, um, which is kind of more than I was expecting. Because to be a leader or to be effective in the work that you do, it's really important to develop reflective practices in your thinking. And so there's been a quite a strong emphasis in the training so far in developing those skills. Um, and we have individual coaches to help us kind of guide, guide that thinking. Are you looking forward to this or have you any reservations about it? I switch between excitement and a kind of nervousness and mm. anticipation, but the overall feeling is definitely just I, I, I'm very, very excited to go there and just to meet all these women that you've been kind of connecting with online and virtually to then actually meet them in person will be really exciting. Do you know what? I think the networking and the relationships that you'll build on this will be as important as anything else. Women, when they get together and network, it's quite a powerful thing. Definitely. And I think that's going to be enhanced by the fact that we're going to such an extreme and stunning environment like Antarctica and to be kind of confronted with that beauty and that fragility of the environment with these women while you're kind of meeting these exceptional scientists, um, I think that's going to enhance that networking experience. Tell me a little bit about your background. Um, So I did my undergraduate here in Cambridge at the Natural Sciences course and I'm now doing a PhD. So I'm just going into my final year of my PhD and I based in the physics department, but studying biological systems. So I bring together ideas in biology, physics and mathematics to try and understand how microorganisms um, cross-feed nutrients, so trying to understand basically the basis of ecosystems. Every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines. And Maddie, what's your background? So like Hannah, I'm also a PhD student, um, but I work at the University of Liverpool and the Natural History Museum in London. And my PhD is looking at um, the animals that live on the seafloor around Antarctica. Um, so this is really relevant to you then, this particular trip? Yes, it is, yeah. So, um, have you been to the Antarctic before? I have. Um, I visited Antarctica with British Antarctic Survey and also the US Antarctic Programme, and I'm really excited to go back. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be able to prepare everybody else for what to expect, I imagine. Yeah, I've had quite a lot of questions about seasickness um, and clothes, (laughs) um, but I'm just really excited to see how other people react to Antarctica. It's it's a really different place, not just in terms of the weather and the climate, but it's it's very isolated. um, And it yeah, I'm just so excited to see how the other women on the ship find that. I think what's going to be so great for Home Abound is 
you're removed from some of the stresses that you have back home. You don't have to worry about little things like going and buying food and cooking and, and stuff like that. It's We're lucky on, on the ship that that's all going to be done for us. So it's just going to really enhance the, sort of the training expedition. Um, but definitely it's... Um, it's it's a tough place to work, so it's really going to push push the participants to to new limits. I think you're doing an event in Cambridge shortly, Hannah. Tell us about that. Yes. So as part of the program, each of the participants has to raise part of the money, so it's not fully funded. And we thought to do some of that fundraising, but at the same time bring together the community of women um, in Cambridge and the kind of broader area um, from London and um, so forth to kind of bring them all together for an evening, which we're calling an evening of empowering women. So the evening will consist of a series of talks. So we've gathered a broad range of speakers um, to give us their perspective on women in leadership. And then we'll bring all of our speakers together into a panel discussion and Q&A. Um, and then there'll also be a silent auction to raise some more money for us. And then there'll be plenty of opportunity for networking with refreshments and things like that. And can anyone go along to this? Is this open to the public? Yes, it's open to the public and tickets are now on sale. And we have a website called Empowering Women UK. Um, dot wordpress.com so if you visit that website you can find out more information about our speakers about um, the timings and it's on the 13th of October in the evening so the talks will start at 7pm and yes it's open to the public the movies and the factories and every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be so it's not just about the fundraising either. It's also an opportunity for companies to collaborate with Homer Bound as sponsors of the journey. So we're not only fundraising, but we're looking for corporate sponsors who share this desire to increase gender diversity in the workplace. Which should be everybody. Exactly. <laughs> or that are very passionate about sustainability. These are all companies that we would welcome to collaborate with us and to be our sponsors for Homeward Bound. And this can be in the form of um, obviously providing us with funds, but to reciprocate, we are more than happy to do talks at the companies about our voyage, about the leadership skills that we have gained. So they can contact us through empoweringwomenuk.wordpress.com. And Hannah, the, the application process is still open at the moment. So the application for the um, expedition that will leave in 2019 is open until the 25th of September, I think. So I definitely encourage every woman in STEM um, to apply for that. That's great. Well, I wish you all the best with this trip. It sounds really, really exciting, if a little cold. <laughs> <laughs> so remember to take all the right clothes with you, as you were talking about earlier, Maddie. And uh, have a fantastic time. And maybe you can come back and tell us about it once you've, uh, once you've been out there. Definitely. That was Cathy Sorbara, Hannah Laverne's Schlogelhofer and Madeleine Brazier speaking to me about Homeward Bound 2018. The music was, of course, Homeward Bound by Simon and Garfunkel. Daisy Johnson has been given the position of the A14 Writer-in-Residence and she has begun gathering poems and stories about the road. Linda Ness talked to her about this highly unusual position. Some work has already been submitted and is read by Tony Barnfield. The long and winding road That leads to your door 
speaking today to Daisy Johnson, who is the writer-in-residence for the A14. That is a really interesting job, Daisy. Yeah, it's great. Um, It's quite a unique title. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how did this come about? So I saw um, an advert online that it was uh, the Institute of Continuing Education at Maddingley Hall was looking for a writer-in-residence for the A14 project. So that's a project that they'd applied for funding for and they wanted to explore the impact of the A14 on the local community and to uh, see if that could be transferred into creative work. Tell us about yourself. What do you actually do? So I'm in the final stages of my research degree up at York University where I look at the representation of uh, landscape in children's literature. So I'm really interested in the... um, symbolism of a hill or what it means to have a book set up in the forest or to have a book set in the uh, urban city so that's my kind of everyday stuff at the moment and alongside that I'm a blogger again on children's books. So this landscape thing fits in perfectly with the changing landscape of the A14 of course and quite a contentious one it has been because of course the the route has been changed and for some communities there's quite an impact. Are you starting to to find people are contacting you about the A14? Oh yeah um, I've had a lot of people emailing me through um, contacting me on Twitter. A limerick submitted by Liz Osman. Travelling on the A14 is rarely, if ever, a dream. Whether a crash or the fog, you'll find a backlog and your ears will begin to steam. But the big thing that I'm doing right now is listening to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not from the area. I am familiar, t- familiar with bits of it, but I want to uh, hear people's stories, really. It's kind of not about my experience with the A14 or my... Um, ideas around it in a way it's more about hearing people's responses to the sp- to the uh, site and getting them to tell their stories good bad fictional fact uh flying pigs uh <laughs> flying ford anglias whatever <laughs> i want to hear something are you going to be speaking to some of the engineers and the people involved in the project itself oh hopefully yeah um hopefully we're going to be um getting in touch with the people that are actually building it and working on it and hearing their stories from such a close um, point of connection to the landscape. Mm. I think that could be really interesting Mm -hmm. because, again, you don't often think about your daily work as maybe creating stories and creativity. Uh, And I think, you know, there could be something exciting in that. So hopefully. And people, of course, that will be affected in a positive way because the A14 will no longer be going through their area. I'm thinking of places like God Manchester. They'll be delighted. There's a horrible, ugly flyover (laughs) and that's going to be removed. So there's there's positive and, of course, there's other people that are going to be Yeah, there's landscapes that have things added, things taken away and... Mm -hmm. You know, I'm interested in the stories that happen when you get these changes put in, but also what happens when they're taken away from you and, you know, the absence of a road maybe that was there before. How does that affect your life? Um, Can you transfer that into a poem or a story or uh, even a limerick, for example? A limerick by Daisy Johnson. I went on the A14. I didn't know what it would mean. My car got stuck. I read a book. And my toddler grew into a teen. Now, you've got a Facebook page, haven't you, that's been set up in order to capture some of these stories? So it's something we set up with the Institute of Continuing Education. And there's a Facebook group. Uh, Search for A14 Stories. So that's A14 Stories. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you search for the uh, A14 Stories hashtag on Twitter, you can find it. And then people can uh, just come along and submit their stories and submit their limericks and see what other people have been sending me. The comments are moderated, so if your comment or submission doesn't appear straight away, it will, I promise. Yes. And it's a welcoming space. I make sure that, you know, your work is looked after if you submit it and that we uh, keep an eye on what you do. And I'm very grateful for anything that gets sent through. I've been looking at that page and there's some very fun and interesting things going on there. And I think there was one day that you asked for a haiku. I would love a haiku. I love haikus. Tell us what a haiku is. You only have a limited amount of words and syllables to play with. You've got three lines of five and then seven and then five. And that's 17 syllables in all. And that's nothing. And now this is a haiku submitted by Martin Campbell. The old Hawley Bends, now a quiet cycle path, still echo of road. I think as well we've had um, we started to get a few uh, six word stories through so a whole story told in just six words wow. which is quite the thing like I would love short stories but I think right now I'm kind of interested in these immediate reactions these very potent small fragments of, of, of creative work that can come from the road Is the post in place for a year? It's only six weeks for me And then after that, the Institute of Continuing Education will be running creative writing classes, which again are advertised on the Facebook or you can uh, ping me on Twitter and I'll send you the link. And I'm really keen that people who don't necessarily think that creative writing is for them to have a go at these classes. Uh, They're free, which is a big thing. You only need to be able to make a, a weekday commitment. And if this project does anything, I really want it to touch those people that don't necessarily think creativity is for them, that you have this opportunity to maybe think a little bit differently about your morning commute or on the way home to maybe think, okay, I could make a poem out of this somehow. And maybe when you're stuck in a traffic jam to kind of transfer that time instead of getting frustrated, which... I understand it is frustrating. (laughs) Definitely, I do understand and sympathise. We're all rushing these days, aren't we? Yeah, but just have that moment and just kind of let your brain think a bit differently about it and see, you know, what comes out. Because I I think um, it's such an empowering act, especially getting your kids involved. I'm a specialist in children's books, so I would love more stuff from children through. That would make my day. It always reminds me of a torturous river, the E14, because it can be quite a difficult, difficult journey as well. You know, there are people die on that road. So it's uh, it, it's a great and terrible place. Well, I'll tell you what, torturous river sounds like the beginning of a poem to me. I'll have to <laughs> enter, <laughs> won't I? You will, definitely. Will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if people wish to submit me a story directly, they can do uh, A14stories at ICE dot c-a-m dot a-c dot u-k so that's a14 stories at ice dot cam dot a-c dot u-k those emails come through to me i will have a look at it and you know i'll be really grateful for anything you can submit now this from zara natasha cooklehouse sinking into a worn sofa mug of cheap coffee in hand giving up the struggle for a while Other prettier routes offer their services, suggestively. The A10 is an espresso or skinny latte. Risby, Kentford, Ely, possibilities, much like baking your own biscuits. But for the instant sugar of an own brand custard cream, you can't beat the A14. What's the output of this all going to be? People are going to be submitting these these 
you know, poems and stories and all these things to you. What happens at the end to all this stuff? So we'll have a big log of everything that's been submitted on the fa- on Facebook. But the big thing is, and this is really interesting, especially if you're wanting to maybe get your first publication credit or to get your name into an anthology or something, is that the Institute of Continuing Education is going to be publishing an anthology of the best work. And this is going to be the work that is submitted through Facebook, but also through the creative writing classes. So... As I say, think about getting on them if you can, because it's such a great experience that you should really try and utilise it if you can. And so we're going to be launching that next year uh, and I'll be back for that event. And I would really love to see some work in there from people that I've met throughout their project. And uh, good luck for your six weeks, Daisy. I wonder if there's any other major arterial road in the country that has its own writer in residence at the moment. I think we're the first. I think it must be. I think it's pretty good to be the first. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. Well, congratulations on this post. I hope you have lots of fun and there's lots of great things come out of it, Daisy. Thank you. Great speaking to you. Thank you. That was Daisy Johnson talking about her unique position as writer-in-residence to the A14. Thanks to all of the contributors for their poems and haiku, and to Tony Barnfield for reading them for us. The music was Long and Winding Road by Paul McCartney. Daisy was great, and she was great fun as well. I think she's going to be a great writer-in-residence for the A14. What an unusual post. That's very odd. Writer-in-residence. Does that mean that she's living on the A14? <laughs> no, no, she's not living in the A14. I mean, some people may feel that they spend their lives on the A14, and I guess this is really aimed at them, and she's very keen that people, even if they're not writers or not poets, she's very keen just to hear from you anything that you've got to say about it and I think we've got a lot to say about the A14 usually haven't we? Well everybody has something to say about the A14. (laughs) I don't know anybody that hasn't been caught up in a traffic jam on the A14 at some time and it's usually the most inconvenient time ever. I got my first mobile phone after getting stuck on the A14 on the bus. I was on the bus for three hours and I had someone meeting me at the bus station and they also waited three hours wondering what on earth was happening. (laughs) It gives you time to think, doesn't it? When you're stuck on the A14. I wonder if anyone's ever given birth on the A14. Oh, yes. I would think they must have done, surely. There must be people out there with fascinating tales about the A14. Hey, girls, what do you keep in the back of your car for such emergencies? Do you keep a flask or a blanket? or What have you got in the back of your car, Liz? Well, I usually carry my flask around with me, funnily enough. It's just a regular thing. I've currently got a cardboard box in the back of my car and in it is a packet of washing tabs to go in a dishwasher. Well, that's good. You see, if you get stuck in the A14, you can do your dishes. Very useful, yes. What else have I got in the back of my car? I have got a blanket rolled up just in case. That is definitely a just in case thing. <laughs> just in and case I, of what? I, what? Exactly. And I've got an umbrella. That's always useful too. I've actually got one of those things that are specifically for women who get caught short. <laughs> Is that what you mean? <laughs> Excellent. I so can't imagine using then? it though. Can you? What's if you get stuck, on the stuck in, exactly. So you, you get stuck on a main road. How are you going to use the thing? So you're going to go round to your boot, take it out, use the blanket, 
like like an old-fashioned photographer. What, are you going to stand by the boot doing this, or are you going to go Oh, back I was thinking the sitting in the boot. Sitting in the boot! <laughs> are you going to pull the lid down? It's probably safest. Have you got one of those triangles as well in the back of your boot? Actually, Bobby, I have. I bought it for my daughter for Christmas and she thought it was the worst Christmas present she'd ever been given and she duly returned it to me. <laughs> so, you get out your triangle, you get out your shiwi, you climb into the boot and off you go. Well, that's, that's prepared. Well, that kills some of the time, doesn't it? Across Cambridgeshire, 21st Century Women on Cambridge 105 and HCR 104 FM. In the second part of Bobby Jones's look into weight loss, she speaks to Pat King, who's been following the diet doctor regime. Today in the studio, I have a lady called Pat King who has had a problem with diet and her levels of weight for a very long time. But recently, within the last year, she has discovered how she can control it. Pat, tell me, what have you done? I'm eating a new way of eating. I'm eating low carbohydrates and high saturated fats. And this has changed my life round. That sounds pretty complicated. Tell me what a high calories and low calories and... We're not worried about calories at all. I don't have to count anything. I don't have to weigh anything. All I have to do is remember not to eat anything that grows below the ground. If I want fruits, I can eat berries. And I can have butter and thick cream and eggs and cheese and bacon and eggs. And it's a wonderful way of eating. And it's made me healthier. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's tremendous. And uh, Pat showed me a photograph of herself a couple of years ago. Yes. And uh, looking at her today in the studio, you wouldn't think it, it's the same person. You really wouldn't. She's totally slim. She's lost that horrible muffin top that you have <laughs> around the top of your your trousers and things. And she looks absolutely fantastic. And I tell you, she's not a youngster. No, I'm 68 (laughs) and I've lost seven inches round my waist. And that's the important bit because that's where all the visceral fat is round all your organs that causes all the illnesses. That's right. So I've lost all that. I remember seeing something on the television about if you can pinch more than an inch. Well, I could certainly do that. (laughs) But now I can't. It's it's brilliant, absolutely yeah. brilliant. So you said you've got to remember that you can only eat things which are grown above the earth. So does that mean you can't have things like carrots? Occasionally I have a carrot or two, but if they're in a casserole, you can't sort them out. You have to keep it simple and realistic. So I can have onions because they're in most meals, but I try and avoid any carbohydrates. So I don't have potatoes, I don't have rice, I don't have pasta, couscous anything that's starchy because originally we never had those things if you go back in history we had to go and collect our meat we had to go and hunt it down and we didn't have all these wheats and things like that in fact the Egyptians used to have a lifespan of 45 years and then they introduced wheat into the diet and then their lifespan went down to 25 years really 
And I, I think this could be the solution for the NHS. If all the doctors, instead of giving out pills, said to everyone, have a look at what you're eating, cut the carbohydrate, that's the main thing. And we're not worried about fats, providing they're saturated fats. Have your butter. Butter is good for you. Yeah, I've always suspected that butter was good for you. It's what our mums used to eat. Oh, absolutely, yes. You know, they, ha they had their three proper meals a day. They were a bit heavy on the old potatoes, but um, mm. you can substitute cauliflower and broccoli and any green veg. It's really good for you and it keeps you healthy. I feel so fit and healthy and it's like spreading the gospel because I want other people to be fit and healthy. And we can save so much doctor's time in that. I'm not diabetic anymore. That's amazing. Yes, my, that's a very big thing, isn't it? My mother died mimicking taking pills because she'd taken so many pills for diabetes and this, that and the other. And I don't want to go down that route. So I thought I'd look on the internet and I found this dietdoctor.com and I thought I'm going to follow that. And low carb, high fat, easy to do, no counting. You can just... Eat that way for the rest of your life. Brilliant. So really, as I said at the beginning, it's changing a mindset. You've got to decide that you want to lose weight and this is how you're going to do it. Yeah. Not only that you want to lose weight, that you want to be healthy. It's good for even slim people. You know, it's not all about weight loss. It's about changing your health ground so that you're eating the right things that make you and keep you healthy rather than all the stodge I mean, when I go shopping now, I just go around the outside of the supermarket. I don't look at the middle of the supermarket where all the calories and all the crisps and Coke. You know, a glass of Coke has 12 spoonfuls of sugar. You wouldn't sit down and eat 12 spoonfuls of sugar. A glass of orange has six spoonfuls of sugar and they say that's healthy for us. That's no good at all. A slice of white bread has a spoonful and a half of sugar. You weigh a spoonful of sugar, it's four grams. You look on a low-fat yoghurt, supposed to be healthy for you. Go low-fat, low-fat, they always said. You look on that, it's got three or four spoonfuls of sugar in it. What a load of rubbish. We never had sugar. In the 1700s, we ate seven spoonfuls of sugar a day. Now we eat 117 in a year. Do we really? It's ridiculous. Gosh. You count up how much sugar you eat during a day and you'll be amazed. It's mm. in absolutely everything in one form or another. They give it different names. They call it mm. fractose and all sorts of things. And you don't need any of it. Just cut it out. And once you've been without it for a couple of weeks, honestly, you can't stand things that taste sweet. How much have you actually lost? I've lost nearly four stone now. Wow, that's a um, lot. And I'm not too worried about losing too much more because mm. I feel comfortable I can go in a shop and buy size 12 and size 14 clothes now whereas before I was up to 22 I'm ashamed to say and it's just an amazing feeling and everyone I meet say gosh you look well gosh you've lost weight and I say yes and I'm not diabetic anymore that's the main thing and it didn't take you that long to lose that amount of no I lost it in about six months you know I'm not totally strict I don't say oh I'm not having that if we're out someone's house and it's birthday and it would be rude not to have a piece of cake mm. but before I would make sure I got the corner of the wedding cake with all the icing on now I get a middle bit and I only have a little bit it's changed my attitude to food so much because to me I I know that sugar is poison uh, yeah that, that's the that's the thing isn't it you've got to be strong you've got to make up your mind yeah. that that's what it's going to be I, I got hypnotized once against chocolate <laughs> 
<laughs> it didn't work. But it did it did tell me, <laughs> made me think that there are insects wiggling around in chocolate. And if you ate chocolate, they would wriggle around inside you. Well, that didn't work. But once I found out all that sugar that's in chocolate, I now have 100% chocolate from Hotel Chocolat. And that's really nice. Got used to it now. Yeah, it's a different taste, isn't it? It's a different yeah. taste and you don't eat much of it because it's a strong taste. And it hasn't got the sugar. That's absolutely amazing. I'm so pleased that you managed to find something that works for you. I don't know whether it would work for me. Well, ladies out there, you heard it from Pat. See what you think. Thank you so much, Pat, for coming in and talking to me. Well, I feel like I've spread the gospel. (laughs) Was she happy, Bobby? about being called a muffin top. I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps I need to apologise to her I for that one. I think you should send one. her an email quickly. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm the one with the muffin top. It's absolutely <laughs> awful. And I definitely need to do dieting. But I think that that is a terribly strict diet. But I do take on board what she's saying about sugar. There's sugar in just about everything. It's not just the sugar that you put in your tea or you don't put in your tea. But that there's sugar in just about everything these days. Mm-hmm. They, they do say that separating, is it protein from carbohydrate, makes you lose weight. So if you don't eat them together, if you eat them separately, yes. that seems to be apparently yeah. a way of uh, losing weight as well. So I guess what she's doing is similar to that because she's not really eating any carbohydrate. And she's, and, oh, but, but this thing about you can't eat anything in, in the ground is a bit strange. So no parsnips, no carrots? Well, no, that's right. Because that's what I said to her, wasn't it? So you can't eat carrots. I can see the point of not eating potatoes, mm-hmm. but it has worked for her. But I, I do think that you have to find the diet that works for you. You've got to live with this diet because, as she was saying, you have to change your whole way of thinking and your whole way of eating. And until you've got the mindset that says yeah I really want to do that like me you end up just getting fatter but I think it's like I said last time I think it's when you start seeing the weight coming off and you're going shopping for a skirt and suddenly it's a size down on on the way it was that's what really bucks you up and makes you continue but you've got to stick with it I mean she's stuck she's stuck with that for for months uh, I, I just can't stick with a diet for months. I, I get bored and then I want to eat. But that's maybe because you're, you're avoiding all the things that you actually like. She's yeah. not. That's all we've time for in this edition of 21st Century Women. Our thanks go to Pat King, Daisy Johnson... Cathy Sorbara, Hannah Laverne's Schlogelhofer, Maddie Brazier and Christine Hopwood. Thanks also go to Tony Barnfield for reading the A14 poems. If you're listening to HCR 104 FM, next up is The Country Show with John and Jackie Manders. And on Cambridge 105, it's 105 Sport with Jack Swindlehurst and Matt Robinson. This show will be available as a podcast on iTunes and on Mixcloud. We'll be back in October. Until then, it's goodbye from Bobby Jones. Goodbye. From Liz Kelly. Goodbye. And from me, Linda Ness. See you next time. 